Romans 7, and we're going to start in verse 7, and we're going to read down to verse 14 this morning. And as usual, you'll find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me. And before we look at God's Word, let's pray. Let's call on Him to bless the preaching of His Word and receiving of it and keeping and believing of it this morning as we do. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would hear us from heaven, from your dwelling place, Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, and that you would pour out your blessing on your people, that your word would come down from your mouth as the rain that comes down from heaven to water the earth, making it bring forth, uh, causing it to bud and to bear fruit, providing seed for the sower and bread for the eater. You have promised that you would send your word out to accomplish all of your purposes. And our God, we pray that your purposes would be the redemption of our souls, the salvation and the sanctification of your people. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be glorified and exalted, that you would give us uh, great care and um, attention as we listen to your word preached. Please speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 7, beginning in verse 7, Paul is continuing on this subject, this idea of um, being freed from the law. And now he takes up another objection that someone might raise up. And he says, what then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was alive once apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of God endures forever. There is a fascinating story in Augustine's Confessions, the Confessions of St. Augustine. He, as you know, is one of the greatest theologians in church history, lived in the 5th century. And Augustine of Hippo penned for us and left us with this autobiographical prayer, as it were. It's a theology in which he is explaining his life. He's telling his story. He's doing it through the avenue of prayers to God. And there's a fascinating account very early on in the Confessions where Augustine is reflecting back on one of his first times of conviction of sin. He was 16 years old. Augustine had come from a family that um, was not poor in itself. And he tells the story that one of their neighbors had a pear tree. And Augustine, as he reflects on this pear tree, he says that he and his friends one night went and snuck onto the property of the neighbor and they, they took huge amounts of pears, 
They stole huge, huge amounts of pears. And you might wonder as you're reading this, well, was he just hungry? Did they need food? Did they lack food? And Augustine very quickly says, we had plenty of pears and plenty of pear trees. We didn't lack anything. We just really wanted to do something wrong. We really loved the idea of theft. And they took a bunch of pears and they threw them to pigs. And that was the story. Now, you may say, I don't see why that's such a big deal. Well, let me contextualize this. You walk into Publix and you steal a bunch of food, not because you need it, and you haul like a truckload of food out of Publix and you go throw it to a bunch of pigs. That's the contextualization of what Augustine was doing in his day. And as you reflected on it, what Augustine started doing was, was the very thing Paul's doing here in Romans 7. And he was reflecting on why would I do this thing that I knew was wrong? Why would I love the theft? And in fact, listen to this. He actually says, Now behold, let my heart tell you what it sought there, that I should be gratuitously evil, having no temptation to ill, but the ill itself. It was foul, and I loved it. I loved to perish. I loved my own fault, not that for which I was faulty, but my fault itself. Foul soul, falling from thy firmament to utter destruction, not seeking anything through the shame, but the shame itself. Now, you may say that doesn't make any sense. Why would anybody consciously say that? And the reality is that only those who have had the law come crashing down on them will say that consciously because they and only they know how heinous their sin is. And as they reflect back after they've been delivered from it, they realize that what the law did, the you shall not did, was provided a platform to show how much they love that sin. And that's exactly what Paul's telling us. Now, Paul is giving us his autobiography. And here in Romans 7, 7 through 14, Paul is first telling us about the relationship he held to the law before he was converted. Paul is giving us just a a little glimpse into his soul, into the psychology of what's going on inside him before he came to saving faith in Christ. And at the same time, Paul is answering objections because Paul has Um, masterfully said that we are justified by faith in Christ, not by any works of the law. He's written to a people he knew, many of whom knew the law, revered the law. And Paul has said, no man is justified by the law. He's made that that great statement that where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. And the, the first objection he took up was, well, then if grace abounds, license, we can sin. And if we're not under law, but under grace, We can go on sinning. Now he turns around and he receives this objection. Well, Paul, you seem to be saying the law of God is bad. You seem to be telling us that all that we read in the Pentateuch, all those laws built on the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments themselves, you seem to be saying, Paul, that the law is sin. You seem to be telling us that God made a mistake, that the law is sin. If I can't be saved by by keeping the law, you're telling me there's something wrong with the law. And so Paul gives us his autobiography. And notice what Paul says in verse 7. By no means, or God forbid, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Paul shifts into first person. He's going to remain in first person through the entirety of this chapter. Paul's going to tell us how his relationship 
stood to the law, what his relationship was before he was in Christ. And then next week, we're going to see that he's going to tell us what his relationship to the law is now that he's in Christ. And he's going to do several things, too. Actually, this morning, we're going to see first, he's going to tell us what the law does to the natural man. And secondly, he's going to tell us what the law is in and of itself, what the law does to the natural man, the person who's not born again, who's not in Christ. And then he's going to tell us, secondly, what the law is in and of itself. And notice that when he starts to unpack this, what does the law do to the natural man? He really gives us three categories. First, he says the law reveals sin. In verse 7, verse 8, he's going to tell us the law provokes sin. And in verse 9 through 11, he's going to tell us that the law condemns sin. The law reveals sin, provokes sin, and condemns sin. And notice what Paul does. He's he's telling us um, at, at the outset that there was a purpose to the law. The law was not sin. The law is not evil. We shouldn't view the Ten Commandments as something negative or something bad. But the first thing Paul says is that I, if it were not for the law, I would not have known sin. Now, this is complicated because the same Paul in chapter 2 told us that the law was written on the hearts of all men in Adam. But there's another sense where if there is no external giving of God's law, men so justify themselves and so live any way they want that, that they, in a sense, live self-consciously free from any guilt. You've met people like this. They've, they've freed themselves from guilt. That becomes, that's a, that becomes a cliche now in our culture. Guilt is bad. I've freed myself from guilt. And what they're saying is I've freed myself from law. There's no law. When I was in Edinburgh a few weeks back, I met a couple from Ireland. We had about a two-hour conversation, and um, they had both grown up in somewhat religious homes, and, and uh, the woman had said she was an atheist. She was the one that wanted to get into it, and she said, you know, I grew up in a religious home, but, but I threw that off, and now I'm happy. And with a big smile, I'm happy now. Um, she, she freed herself from any moral obligation to God. She freed herself from any constraint, from any thou shalt not, you shall. She freed, her, she freed herself. She was free now, and yet she was in complete bondage to sin. But Paul says that God gave the law because the law gives the knowledge of sin. We need to know the depths of our sin. Let me say this this morning. I'm not sure you could find a person who's really converted, an adult who's really converted, who has not gone, undergone some sort of um, time of condemnation under God's law, some sort of law revealing in their lives, because sinners go to Jesus. And Paul says, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. I would not have known that I needed a savior if it were not for the law of revealing what the sin is that the Savior had to die for. And notice that Paul, as he begins to unpack this, he actually tells us something about himself. Paul actually tells us that his big sin was covetousness. I don't know if you think about Paul, pre-conversion, Saul of Tarsus, as a greedy man. I don't know if you think about him that way, but he was probably one of the wealthiest young men in Israel. He was one of the religious leaders. The Pharisees in the New Testament are said to be lovers of money, that they were seeking to justify themselves. You know the story where Jesus meets the rich young ruler, and he wants to justify himself, and he wants to know what he has to do 
to inherit eternal life. He's, he's supremely self-righteous. What do I do to get the inheritance, Jesus? And Jesus doesn't say, believe on me. He says, keep the commandments. And that man, wanting to justify himself, tried to convince himself that he had kept the commandments. And so Jesus puts his finger in the wound and he goes to the 10th commandment and he says to that man, give away everything that you have. Go give away everything you have. And the man wouldn't do it because the rich young ruler, like Saul of Tarsus, was a greedy, covetous, money-loving, Christ-dishonoring man. And Paul says that's what he was, that the enmity and the hostility that Paul showed towards the Christian community, which was not across the board normal to the degree you saw it in Paul, that you almost get a sense that Paul's saying the sin that characterized my life and the sin that the law kept crashing down on and kept saying to me, covetous, 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 was the sin of greed that Paul, before he came to Christ, was becoming aware that he was a greedy man. You know, my own conversion, I think I've shared this in the past, while every one of the Ten Commandments should have crashed down on my conscience, there was one in particular that just kept crashing down, crashing down, crashing down, saying guilty, 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 guilty. And that's why I went to Jesus. The law, Paul says, reveals sin. Notice, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So Paul is saying that's good. Paul is defending the law. He's saying, while the law can't justify you, while your your attempts to keep the law cannot in any sense whatsoever put you in a right standing with God because you can't keep the law, and even if you could, the law has promised life only to those who perfectly keep it, Paul says that, The law came in to reveal sin. I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. And so when we think about God's law, we ought to think it's good that God is telling me what sin is because his law is right and good and my sin is evil. And and Paul is everywhere pitting these two. These two are coming into conflict with each other. That's the great problem we have by nature. God's law is wholly good. We are wholly sinful. And so Paul says the law... Reveals sin. And then secondly, what the law does to the natural man, he tells us that the law provokes sin. Now, this is more complicated. Notice what he says in verse 8. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now, notice Paul is sticking with that, the 10th commandment. He's staying with the one commandment that he said revealed what was in his heart. And obviously, Paul had Lots more sin than just that, but that's the one he wants to fixate on. And he says that sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all sorts of covetousness. Now, we kind of touched on this last week, that when you say keep off the lawn, everybody wants to go on the lawn. When you are unregenerate and God says, and you have a covetous heart, and God says, you shall not covet, you want to covet more. Now, is very complicated. We're very complicated people. Um, how does the law aggravate and provoke sin? How, why, why, does it, why, did Augustine, why did Augustine want the pears to throw to the pigs? Why, why did Augustine react to, you shall not steal, by wanting to take loads of things from other people and throw them away and love that sin? 
I think John Piper actually answers this most, in, in my opinion, most helpfully. He, he gives two ways that um, sin deceives. Notice the language. Notice the language of. Um, notice the language of verse eleven. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So, verse nine, right? Verse eight. I'm sorry. Uh, sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And then verse 11, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me. That's the key. That's how we're going to figure out. That's how we're going to get to what does it mean that the law provokes sin in the unregenerate? What does that mean? How does that happen? And Paul is going to say that it deceives you. Now, It's not that God is deceiving you by the law, but that you are deceiving yourself, that we have deceitful hearts. And here's how the deceit works. Piper gives two ways that sin deceives us by the commandment, taking opportunity. Number one, he says that when we think about God's law, when we think about the commandments, we either fall into a state of hopelessness and we say, well, I can't do that. Therefore, there's probably not a God in heaven, so I'm going to medicate with self-indulgence. This is what people do. They, they medicate, money and medication. You take away all the money, all the medication, you see what's in people's hearts. Why do people medicate? Why do they, they put the bandages of medication on? I think Piper's right because they think about God's law. They think, I can't do that. So either God is bad or God has lied or God doesn't exist. And so I'm going to medicate because there's no hope. So that's how sin takes opportunity by the commandment deceives, and then ultimately we'll talk about kills. Now, the second way sin deceives by the commandment, and I think Piper's right, is that it says, I can do that. So it either says, I can't do that, and then I go live in medicating lawlessness and hopelessness, or it says, I can keep God's law. I can do that. I will be as good as the next guy, and I will be a hopeful person. This is why everybody you know thinks they're going to heaven when they're going to hell. It's why everybody you know deceives themselves into thinking they're going to heaven when they're outside of Christ and they're going to hell. Because they say, I will be hopeful. I know better things are coming. I can obey God's law. So sin is the problem, not the law. Sin, not the commandments, are sin. And you either get deceived. If you're not in Christ, you get deceived by thinking, I can't do it, I'll live for this world, or I can do it, I'll live for myself, I'll live in hopelessness or in hope, but I won't live in a need for Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying. And so the law aggravates sin in us. I think that's a very helpful way of explaining what happens by nature. Paul was very acutely aware of this. I think post-conversion, he's doing what Augustine was doing. He's looking back at what he was. And he's realizing, he's realizing, he's examining his life and he's saying, that's why I did that and that's why I did that. And it was all making sense to Paul. But remember, Paul is vindicating the holiness of God and the commandments of God, not for justification. He's saying first that the law reveals sin. Secondly, the law aggravates sin. Thirdly, the law condemns sin. There's sort of a stepping stone here. I think in the life of converted people, to some degree, they go through these steps Sin revealed, sin aggravated, sin condemned, flee to Jesus. How does sin condemn? Notice what Paul says here. 
He says, sin seizing an opportunity, verse 8, through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now notice this. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now he's not saying that sin's not sin, but he's saying if there was no law, there would be no sin. And if the law doesn't come into my mind and heart, I can convince myself I'm really not that bad a person. I know a person in town who has looked me dead in the eyes and said, I have never sinned. Never sinned. I said, are you kidding me? They they have said to me repeatedly, I have never sinned. Some of you know this person. I have never sinned. That's exactly what Paul's saying. When you get rid of the law of God... Sin's dead. And what does Paul say? Notice this. Notice verse 9. I was alive. I was alive. You know, in my years of rebellion, I was never more alive. I was alive in the world. I ran after that sort of life. And yet, it was death. And when the commandment came in, it showed me that what I thought was life was really death. That's what Paul's saying. Notice this. He says, I was alive apart from the law. Verse 9, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So when Paul realized the holiness of God and his covetousness, it condemned him and he died. This is not the same death we've talked about, dying with Jesus from the law. This is spiritual death that he realized that he thought he was free. The the woman I met in Edinburgh, she looked at me and functionally said, I'm alive. I have cast away everything that brought any kind of restriction. I'm alive. And Paul says she is dead. And the law comes in and the law condemns and the law crushes and the letter kills and it has to. Let me say this this morning. If you are redeemed, you have experienced this at some level. If you're not redeemed, you have to experience this. The letter has to come in. Sin has to revive. You have to realize your spiritual death. You have to realize the heinousness of sin. The only people that flee to Jesus Christ are people that realize the greatness of their sin, the weight of their sin. Paul's going to tell us the law is good and holy and right. We're going to come to that in just a second. He's telling us how it works. He's telling us these are the ways it works. This is what it does. Um, If you are the kind of person that right now you're saying, I don't want to undergo any of that. Um, Why would I ever want to undergo any of that? Well, the converse is you can go out and you can live life and you can think you're alive and you can go out and you can think you're set free and you're happy And you can go out, and and what Paul's saying is that ultimately you will be living in death. You will be living in, in, and he talked about this, didn't he? Back in chapter 6, he said, sin leading to more sin, leading to more unrighteousness, leading to more unrighteousness, and the downward, downward spiral. So, So trying to get away from this will lead down to hell. That's what the Bible says trying to get away from the restraint of God's law. But the law can't change you. The law can't change you. I think all of this is what our our Westminster standards talk about when they 
They talk about the first use of the law, that it's a schoolmaster, that it's meant to drive us to Christ. That once we realize what sin is in our life, once we realize the aggravations of sin and that we've wanted to do more, once we feel the condemnation of it, the only hope we have is that there is a Savior who said, I have come and I have done what you could not do. I have done for you. I have shouldered the burden of the law for you. I was born under the law. I made myself of no reputation. I became a bondservant. I fulfilled the demands of the law. This is why it's so important when we read Jesus saying, I have come to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus comes. Everything Paul said in chapter 1 through 5 comes back again. I don't want you to hear this morning anything in chapter 7, verse 7 through 14, if you don't remember what Paul has said about justification in Jesus Christ. That Jesus has done what the law could never do. So that as the law does its work on us, we flee to him. And he takes away the condemnation of the law. And he takes away the aggravating power of our sin. And he begins to grow us and he writes his law on our hearts. We're going to come to that in chapter 8. He makes us want to be those that love his law and that want to be obedient in the power of the Holy Spirit. But this has to happen. The law has to reveal sin, provoke sin, and condemn sin. Well, secondly, Paul is going to tell us very briefly and related that the law is in and of itself good. Notice that he does this in verse 12, and he does it again in verse 14. Notice verse 12. He concludes this section. He asks the question in verse 7, is the law sin? And he answers it finally in verse 12. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And then verse 14 For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Now, this took me a long time to get. I was a young Christian and being set free from the fear of hell and knowing that my sins had been forgiven and knowing that I was in Christ. um, I think I had a tendency to look at the law of God in the wrong light. A lot of Christians mistakenly think the law is bad. It's not going to justify you. You're not going to be justified by what you do in light of the law. But Paul's going to say the law is good and the commandment holy and just. Now, let me explain to us how that works. When God says you shall not commit adultery, he is saying, I want you to find the greatest joy you can have with the spouse I am going to give you. When he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, he is saying, rest. He's saying, rest. When he says, you shall have no other gods before me, he's saying, I want you to know me as a fountain of infinite pleasures. That's how God likens himself. He he says to Israel and Jeremiah, my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And they have hewned out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, you shouldn't think that's bad. You should think that's good. God wants me to have joy in him. When he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, he's saying, I want you to have a day off. I want you to rest. I want your soul to have rest in my son. So every commandment is good and right. When God gave them to Adam and Eve, he essentially said to Adam and Eve, and all this really goes back there. He gave law to Adam and Eve. He essentially said, run around naked in the garden. Eat of anything you want. Have rule over all of creation. Turn this beautiful garden 
into the whole earth. Fill the earth. Be fruitful. Multiply. I've given you everything. Just don't eat this one tree. And that was so that Adam and Eve would remember that God was God and that they would delight in him and that they would worship him and that they would remember that he was the Lord over all that he had freely given them. And the commandment was good and it was right and it was holy. And what Satan did, Satan came in and he said, has God really said you can't eat of any of the trees of the garden? And what Satan did was he attacked God's character and he planted seeds of of unbelief in the minds of Adam and Eve, particularly in Eve. And he functionally said, God doesn't want you to enjoy anything. The law is evil. And you're not going to die. Satan said, the law is evil. God is the problem. You need to be freed from that. And that's why Paul goes to great lengths to say, no, the law is good and holy and right. I want to read a quote to you from Gerhardus Voss. He says, the law itself has no religious defect. The law itself has no religious defect. It is neither weaker nor stronger than by reason of its nature one could expect it to to be. Now listen to this. Within the category of law, it is perfectly normal, spiritual, and good. So law falls in the category of law, and if you consider law in the category of law commandments, it is good and holy and perfect. Voss says, only it addresses itself to a mind which is sinful and cannot react upon its stimulus so that the result is weakness in the sense of inefficacy. The law can't make you holy. The law can't change you. Your attempts to keep the law are not going to change you. The law doesn't have power to change sinners. Only Jesus does. So he says, when the law comes into a a sinful mind, the, the result is weakness in the sense of inefficacy. Now, that means the law is good and holy and just, but notice what Paul says in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? So, how am I supposed to sum all this up? If the law is good and holy and right, and I'm sinful, and the law awakened me to my death spiritually, what what do we do with this? And notice what Paul says In verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Paul is going to come to a conclusion. Actually, turn over here as we close. Romans 8. It's funny. Paul has this way of introducing things and then not giving you the answer for another 40 or 50 verses. So it's always good to read this stuff in context. But Romans 8, notice this. He's going to pick this up, and we'll just end with this. Um, Notice verse 3. This is the verse. For God has done what the law, weak by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for our sin he condemned sin in the flesh. God did what the law could never do, because the law was weak through the flesh, and he sent his Son and he took, he took flesh and blood to himself, just like you, yet without sin. And he took all the sin on himself. And on the cross, he condemned sin. He condemned it. He pronounced condemnation on our sin. In our place, in our person, 
And God did what the law could never do. And so what Paul is going to say here, and every biblical writer is going to say, the whole Bible is going to say this, look to Jesus Christ. When you feel the weight of the law, when you know that the law has revealed sin in you, that it has aroused sin in you, and that it has condemned you, look to Jesus Christ. You know, I don't think we could ever exhaust Jesus' invitation. Come unto me. All you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, labor trying to be better, labor trying to do better, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, and I will give you rest for your souls. That's what God says to you this morning. In light of everything Paul said about the law, come to Jesus Christ. You know, it was Augustine who in that same confession, as he wrestles with his sin, and he did far worse things than steal pears, and he tells you that, um, that he, he, he gives those monumental words, our souls are restless until they find rest in you. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to give you rest by condemning sin in the flesh. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we need to know the law and the law working in our lives. We will come, Lord, to acknowledge that we ought to love your law and, and call it a delight, and yet we acknowledge, Lord, that we, are, that we are carnal, that we are sold under sin. We acknowledge that that we know sin by your law and that we have, um, we have multiplied sin as we have heard the commandments. We have had hearts that have been deceived. We pray, Father, that you would drive the gospel home this morning. We pray that we would know the glorious good news of what you have done for us, Lord Jesus, that you have removed the condemnation of the law, that you have taken the sting of death, that you have defeated the evil one for us, that you have given us new hearts, that you have raised us up with you. Father, we pray that we would delight ourselves in your son this morning. As we come to the table, we pray that you would help us to feed on the Lord Jesus, that we might know more of his grace and that we might know rest from the condemnation of sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.